Dotnet Rocks episode 864 with guest Donald Larson. Recorded live Thursday, March 28th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklins.net, makers of GesturePad, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePAK.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone 7, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's another geek out. We're uh, expanding on the nuclear theme today and going thorium. Hey, Richard, how are you? I'm ready to do a third nuke show. But, uh, hey, people were asking, so what more could you say? And we happen to be recording on the day that we published the geothermal show. That's right. Well, I I think we opened a lot of people's eyes as to the efficiency of nuclear compared to everything else. Yeah. Well, there's lots to be said and and obviously more to be said. But uh, people keep sending us uh, comments and emails, and we'll uh, keep doing these at least one a month. Hey, we're not going to do Better No Framework today. Sorry you don't get to hear the music, but uh, <laughs> Richard, somebody talking to us? You know, I grabbed a comment off of 844, which was the nuke show we did with Rod Adams. And this particular comment's very salient. It just happened to work out that it ties into a geothermal show. This was from David Specht, who said, Richard and Carl, about the comment you read about steam power, the IEEE Spectrum had an interesting special report, and he provides a link to that, which I'll throw into the show notes here, a few years ago that basically detailed how generating energy consumes a lot of fresh water, coal, nuke, geothermal, and so on, and cleaning water consumes a lot of energy as well. From discussions of different energy sources, I have yet to see a perfect solution. All types of energy production have pros and cons, including, quote, green energy solutions. It comes down to picking the ones that works best in a region and trying to minimize the negative consequences. Uh, and absolutely, David, I'm, I did not intend when we did the geothermal show to end up talking so much around freshwater impact on power, uh, but it it dominated for a reason. It becomes a really important issue. And certainly one of the parts that we got into on that show focused on the fact that when you're talking about a reactor or a, a power plant design from the 1950s or 1960s, there was a lot less consideration about water usage. And so it's it's kind of unfair to compare the two. When you look at more modern designs, they're getting more sensitive about consuming water and, and how they deal with that. And so, you know, they're getting better and better at it. it certainly mm-hmm. these days, Water impact is a huge consideration for any new power plant design. The real issue here is that we're just not moving power plant technology forward very quickly, largely because it's expensive and the old ones are still, quote, working until we assign the consequences of these uh, power plant designs, including their effect on water supply. uh, We're not going to have enough incentive to replace them. So thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, you can write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of the mobile apps, iPhone, Android, and WinPhone 7 and 8. From our fine friends at Diatom Enterprises, you can write comments right there, and they appear as part of the main comment stream. Awesome. Well, before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, releasing 12 to 15 new courses every month, offering a free 10-day trial or 200 minutes. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything and everything Microsoft. 
Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce our guest. Donald Larson is a software guy and a nuclear engineer. He runs a software-as-a-service company building services in .NET and deploying on Azure. Donald also runs the Energy from Thorium Foundation, which is promoting a very different nuclear technology based on the thorium fuel cycle instead of the uranium-plutonium cycle of today's reactors. Welcome, Donald. Greetings, gentlemen. Great to be here. You contacted us uh, after that last nuke show, and um, we had talked about thorium a little bit, but we, you know, honestly didn't know the the facts. Uh, the the sheet that you sent us was absolutely astounding to me. Um, let's uh, just just give us the elevator pitch. Oh, geez. Let me uh, let me try to see if I can condense that fairly quickly because I'd love to talk for hours on it. But uh, thorium is uh, is number ninety in the periodic table. And if we go back to the 1960s, uh, when the United States was start, starting to play with reactor technology, uh, there was a group at Oak Ridge National Lab uh, that was working on a project called the Molten Salt Reactor. And the head of that project was a guy by the name of Dr. Alvin Weinberg. And Weinberg liked to say that if we were going to solve the energy crisis for the world, we were going to need to burn the rocks. And what he meant by that was that there's another fuel out there besides the uranium-plutonium fuel cycle, and that's thorium. And what's so neat about thorium from an abundance standpoint is that it's virtually everywhere. Um, it's more prevalent in the Earth's crust than uranium by a factor of three. And, and it's actually, there's more thorium on the planet than there is gold. So it's, uh, it's found in just about every place on Earth. There's rich deposits throughout the United States, China, and India. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of the places that you find it all the time is in rare earth mines. So all of those fancy hardware things we've got in our hips, uh, all those great little tiny cell phones that are dependent upon all these fancy rare earths. Any place there's a rare earth mine, there's lots of thorium. Uh, well, the reason why there's really no thorium reactors out today is that there was really only one place in the U.S. that was being looked at. Um, in the 1960s, they built a reactor that ran from uh, 65 to 69 um, again, this was the MSR project, Molten Salt Reactor. Ran on a variety of fuels. Actually, ran it on on uranium and plutonium as well. Really, really neat technology. At all the other national labs in the U.S., though, you think of Sandia and Los Alamos and Lawrence Livermore. All of the guys who are running those facilities around the country were uh, graduates or alumni of the Manhattan Project, and all of them were focused on the uranium plutonium fuel cycle for obvious reasons. It's what everybody had studied during World War II. It's the only thing that they knew. So when the decisions were coming made, where was the U.S. really going to go with their first major push into using reactors for power? Mm. Uh, it was kind of a lopsided uh, vote at that time. It wasn't really voted. Decision was made in the White House, but the Nixon administration, for a variety of reasons, with a, a ton of voices, were telling them that uranium plutonium with light water was the way to go. So the voices at Oak Ridge really got kind of drowned out, and all of the great advantages from you know the sheet I showed you. Uh, really didn't get a chance to surface. And that's that's why we're running light water reactors, at least on our side of the border. Uh, obviously, uh, guys on your side, uh, heavy water reactors dominate. But that's the, that's the quick and dirty on how we got to this stage with thorium. All right. So let's talk about the, uh, first of all, you say it's very abundant, but how easy is it to get in a uh, into a state where it can be used in a reactor? Well, that's the first big advantage of thorium over uranium, is there really is only one isotope of thorium on the planet, and that's that's the thorium-232. So when you're digging this stuff out of the ground, 
just like you would want to get iron or gold or lead or anything else. You can do very simple chemical separation to get your thorium. Uranium, on the other hand, there's not really any naturally occurring 233, but there's uranium-235, there's uranium-238, uh, all these various isotopes of uranium. And in order to uh, build a reactor, you got to dig a lot of uranium out of the ground. And then particularly with light water technology, you've got to go into this whole purification cycle. Uh, you probably heard of, you know, the on our side of the border back in uh, the 40s, they built these giant gaseous diffusion plants to make uranium hexafluoride so that you'd have U-235 and U-238 as a gas with the hook to the fluoride, and they'd send them through literally miles and miles worth of tubes with tiny little holes in it. You know, the uranium-235 right. being a little lighter would go a little further. <laughs> so uranium uh, has to be enriched, right? And, and that takes a lot of money and a lot of time. And um, But what about what about thorium? What kind of uh, process? You s let's talk about the process of enriching or getting thorium to that state. Well, and, and actually, it's not a matter of enrichment. It's just a matter of purification. So just like a, literally in any other mineral or element that you would walk out of the ground, want out of the ground, it's simple chemical separation. No different than, than pulling out gold, no different than pulling out silver. Okay. I mean, obviously, the chemicals are a little different. So it's much easier to prepare for the power plant. Very, very easy to prepare for the power plant. Now, yes. one, of, one of the things I've been reading here is that um, – the, the whole rare earth metals issue, which is really kind of interesting because they consider thorium a contaminant and a really expensive contaminant because it is radioactive. It is very, very mildly radioactive. Uh, you've got a pretty technical audience. So uh, the half-life of thorium is approaching 15 billion years. Again, that's B, right. <laughs> not M. Um, so it's, it's really a very, very stable isotope, a uh, very, very stable element, I mean. But the, the point is, it has been legally defined as a low-level radioactive uh, waste product. So the rare earth guys have to dispose of it uh, in, in accordance with all the other regulatory and policies that is if they, they pulled uranium out of the ground, which is very expensive for them. I, I would argue that uh, it shouldn't be handled that way, that the stuff's yeah. very safe. Well, one of the issues here is that largely rare earth mining has stopped outside of China, because China has these few deposits that don't have the thorium issues near as significantly. And so one of the reasons rare earths are getting expensive is that there's only one supply because it's the cheapest supply. We could be lighting up supplies in the U.S. if thorium became valuable. Oh, absolutely. Well, and actually, if we would just uh, regulate it differently, the, uh, the Chinese actually, and this is where I think they take a much more sensible approach to the to the regulation that we do. Since thorium really is stable, I mean, honest to God, guys, if, if we had a pound of it sitting on my desk here, I wouldn't be the least bit worried about it. It's not a hazard to anybody. Right. And, and there's nothing really rare about rare earths. They're kind of a misnomer. Rare earths are pretty abundant on the planet. Uh, it just happens to be a name that uh, they caught on way back when they were finding the periodic table there. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Chinese have a huge advantage in, in mining rare earths and dealing with the thorium issue uh, because of, uh, you know, a more sensible regulatory policy around managing the thorium. Uh, they just put it back in the ground let and me, not worry about it. Let me read from your uh, document here. A mere 6,600 tons of thorium could provide the energy equivalent of the combined global consumption of 5 billion tons of coal, 31 billion barrels of oil, Three trillion cubic meters of natural gas, and here's the killer: sixty-five thousand tons of uranium. So, sixty-six hundred tons of thorium 
is the same uh, output you're saying as 65,000 tons of uranium. So does that mean that thorium is actually more efficient in the nuclear process than uranium? Uh, you've got to, you, know, you got to be, I want to be very careful how I answer that. The answer yeah. is yes, but we got to be specific about what we're saying here. Okay. Uh, uranium does have all those various isotopes in it. So when you dig, uh, you know, 60,000 tons of uranium out of the ground, you have, you have 235 and you have 238 and they don't, they can't all be used the same. Um, the other neat thing about thorium in particular with the technology we're advocating is for them to be used in the same reactor that Alvin Weinberg proposed back in the 1960s, which is the molten salt reactor, um, which means that all of the thorium can be essentially used in the fuel cycle. There's no waste. There's there's very little waste. Uh, okay. I mean, like fractions of a percent. Uh, whereas with a typical uranium-plutonium fuel cycle, um, you end up with a hefty chunk of U-235s left over. And uh, depending on, on the reactor, anywhere from 5 to 50 percent, you'll see the numbers out there. And virtually all of the uranium-238 um, is left over from a light water reactor. So you've got all the 238 left and a hefty portion of the 235. So that is unspent fuel in the current reactor technology. Whereas if you take the exact same mass, and a, a ton of thorium, and feed it into a molten salt reactor, do it in what we call a lifter, the liquid fluoride thorium reactor, um, you keep fueling the reactor with more liquid fuel and you use, again, 99 plus percent of the thorium is consumed in that reactor. Therefore, it is markedly more efficient than the uranium plutonium fuel. Cycle. All right. All right. So long winded answer, but I'm saying yes to your question. Okay, but good. So let's just review because my mind is being blown here a little bit. Let's review. So thorium is more potent. It is stable. It does not produce waste. Uh, it's more abundant. Why on earth did we choose the uranium-plutonium cycle over the thorium cycle? There, what do the critics say? You know about when somebody throws stones at this. What is the argument, and what's the answer? Well, um, part of the reason it's not being done goes back to again my long-winded intro. There, you know, in the in the late '60s, early '70s, when the decisions were being made as to how to make reactors, there was a lot of politics involved. Thorium was really only being uh, being touted at Oak Ridge, one of the national labs in the United States. Uh, all of the other labs had a ton of experience with uh, with the uranium plutonium fuel cycle, so there's a lot of voices there. Uh, the molten salt reactor, when it comes to generating power, uh, the what we're talking about is a, a, a gas breaking helium cycle. So there's no no water. Kind of goes to your intro, guys. A, a typical uh, nuclear reactor uses a lot of water, which means steam. Which, did, let's be honest, all of the world's got experience using steam to make power. <laughs> so there's there's another, I don't want to say it's it's a real advantage of the light water reactor uranium-plutonium fuel cycle. But people knew it, they had experience with it, and they were comfortable with it. Uh, there was also a lot of talk, of course, in that era about uh, uranium and plutonium had a huge, huge other use in the 1960s and the 1970s. Yeah, weapons. Uh, there was this little thing called the Soviet Union. Mm. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I realized that they've been gone for a little while here. The younger members probably, look, your younger listeners don't remember it. But it was a very, very serious issue. Uh, the uranium-plutonium fuel cycle, and even though a light water reactor really isn't used to make weapons-grade material. Uh, but uranium-plutonium is absolutely the route you go when you want to make weapons. Right. So thorium doesn't make good weapons? Is that what you're saying? It, it really does. Uh, you, uh, the, the thorium fuel cycle, 
uh, particularly in the MSR, the way we're talking about it, does not breed the, uh, the higher actinides, which is where you get into, uh, again, plutonium-238, plutonium-239, uh, the things you want to use to make a bomb. Well, it, in fact, it, it goes further still. It actually poisons the uh, actinides with 232, which really screws up fast fizzle reactions. What are you saying, Richard? What, what poisons what? I'm sorry. There's uh, what, he's, what he's going to is in, in the thorium fuel cycle, one of the isotopes that when, when, when you get into a reactor, uh, you can end up making a uranium-232 uh, isotope in the reactor, which, again, is, is not naturally occurring, and it's got a hard gamma decay. Uh, and we're really starting to geek off here, guys. So uh, <laughs> for the non-engineers who are listening, I apologize. But when you emit a hard gamma uh, in the decay of 232, it will destroy electronics. I mean, it's just a terrible, terrible poison. And is this a side product of thorium molten salt reactors, or is this absolutely? A- yeah, you okay. you end up making 232 uh, a, a small small percentage of it, and, and that will ultimately burn out the reactor as you keep fueling the reactor. But if you were to quote unquote, you know, steal a reactor and you have the fuel there, you've got this uranium two thirty two, and it's got this hard gamma decay, and it's a uh, it's a terrible thing uh, for anybody who's trying to process this stuff. It's it's phenomenally hot. You can you know pick it up with detectors left, right, and center. It's bad for electronics. Uh, it, it's what I would call making it more and more proliferation resistant. Because um, uh, to, to live in the real world, um, you know, if, if there's a if there's a mad psychotic billionaire out there in some third world country who, who wants to build a weapon, uh, you know, they're going to go the path of least resistance. Uh, there's a reason why the Iranians are not trying to build a molten salt reactor. There's a reason why, you know, they've got classic enrichment facilities that allows you to breed higher and higher concentrations of uranium-235. That's the technology that's proven. It's the technology that everybody understands. It's the easy path to build that um, stuff. Hardly easy, but maybe relatively so. Well, yeah, it, it's yeah. a question of relatively easy. Right. Do you also think the Iranians are choosing the classic cycle because they're building bombs? Uh, I, uh, I think if you look at any of the, the literature out there today, uh, everybody's predicting that, you know, the Iranians are doing this not, not to build power plants, mm. uh, but to build weapons. Guys, could, maybe we should take a little step back here and separate thorium from molten salt, just because they're, they're two different things. I, I, that, so then here's a choice. Do we now, shall we dig into molten salt irrespective of the fuel or should we talk about thorium in other fuel formats? Like why not you power light water reactors with thorium? Uh, there, that absolutely can be done. And that's actually being looked at across the globe. Uh, both, uh, India and Norway, uh, have programs right now where they're looking at using thorium as a solid fuel in a conventional reactor. And there are some advantages to doing that. Uh, you again come back to the whole point of that, you know, thorium is naturally very, very abundant. Uh, when you get into the reactor physics, um, you know, thorium uh, helps you breed fuel. It helps stabilize the flux across the reactor. Uh, there's a, there are some real reasons why thorium is viable in a solid fuel reactor. Uh, but it, there, it, it still then doesn't solve some of the larger issues of continuous fueling so that you don't have long-lived waste issues. That's a big uh, uh, benefit of the MSR for sure. So the, and I've, I've been reading a bit about this Norway company. So this is a traditional light water reactor. Uh, it's, I think it's Thor Energy is working on this, but they're trying to build fuel rods out of thorium the same as uranium rods. 
Uh, that is correct. They, uh, they, they need to do a, a mix, though, uh, in the fuel rot because thorium, and, and again, we're kind of geeking off here, is what's known as a, a, a fertile fuel instead of a fizzle fuel. Right. Uh, so they have to constantly also mix in uh, uranium uh, with the thorium that they would have in the solid field reactor. And then they have to reprocess the fuel afterwards. Um, with a with a, a lifter or liquid fluoride thorium reactor, you feed thorium into the outer blanket. You do initially seed the reactor with uranium-235 to kick it off and get the cycle going. But you only need to put the uranium in once, one time only on startup, and then you fuel the reactor with thorium from then on out. Hmm. All right. And I just think that's an important point to realize. There are other ways to use thorium. There's, but you get into the whole issue of fuel rods have these problems. They're expensive to make, and you have to shut down a reactor and refuel it on a periodic basis. Absolutely. Um, uh, again, on your side of the border, you know, Canada has a, has a solid fuels program, but a very, very different reactor cycle. Uh, you know, the, the, the can do, the Canadian deuterium uranium reactor, um, has, has little tiny pressure vessels surrounded by the heavy water. And they're, they're refueled, uh, individually. So you don't have to shut the whole reactor down, but you're back to the solid fuel problem. And, you know, solid fuel, um, has so many issues with, with making it, with coming up with cladding for it, the constant fuel cycle problems. And, and going to a, a little piece of reactor physics here, um, the way a reactor works, it's the to get to criticality, there's two functions. There's the shape of your fuel, and there's how dense your fuel is. You know, the 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 best shape for doing anything, the lowest uh you know surface to volume ratio is a sphere. So imagine you had two sides of a sphere's guy, and you had exactly the amount in each side of each half of the sphere to make it a critical reaction when you brought it together. As soon as you snap them, you have a perfect sphere, criticality starts. You have your first reaction of power, and you now no longer have enough fuel to maintain the reactor. Mm. In, right. in a split instant, you're subcritical. And the way solid fuel gets around this, of course, is they put more than enough fuel to maintain criticality uh, so that they, they, they can burn down, and then they have fuel loading schemes, you know, take a little bit out, you know, put some more in, and, and try to as efficiently as possible use up the fuel. But you're always stuck with the fact that you can't drop just a tiny little bit in. <laughs> You have to move an entire solid fuel rod assembly and take something out. And when you take it out, it's still going to have uranium-235 in it. It's still going to have 238 in it. And it will probably have bred plutonium at the same time. So even though you may have started with just 235 and 238, you're now taking a solid rod out that's actually got plutonium in it. And you've, you've made the rod hotter than when you put it in. Right. And that's a downside to our current technology and, and why we really think going liquid fuels and keeping that stuff in there until you have burned it out entirely. Mm -hmm. You have nothing but fission products. Now you have a low level waste uh, that can be managed very efficiently. Some of the waste products actually are very, very valuable um, and can be sold on the open market. There's lots of things uh, around actinium and molybdenum and technetium that are valuable uh, medical isotopes, which the, the solid fuel guys do make as well. But it's very difficult to get out of the fuel, difficult to then package into products for the medical guys and ship them out. Uh, Metastable Tech 99 has a half-life of like nine hours. Right. I mean, it's, it's super short. So to try to take that out of solid fuel, package it, get it on an airplane, and rush it to a medical center for treatment, you can see all the difficulties. Whereas with a liquid fuel reactor, 
you know, tap on off, run through the chemical processors, you know, get the Tech 99 out yeah. and, and sell it to the medical community. Because think of all those giant chemical plants uh, all around the country that make everything we use, whether it's your laptop or, or even a glass mug next to you. They, they didn't glue together pieces of solid glass. They poured the glass from liquid, right? Mm. <laughs> right? Virtually everything in the world starts out and is made in some sort of a liquid process because the chemical engineers have shown that that's the most efficient way to do your processes. And it's the same thing with a reactor. Ultimately, the most efficient way for us to go is with liquid fuels so we can do continuous processing of the reactor, solve the long waste problem, solve the unspent fuel problem, as I like to call it, uh, from the uranium-plutonium fuel cycle. Because, again, there's, there is valuable 235, there's 238, and often there's plutonium uh, left over when, you, when you're taking the rods out of a solid-fuel reactor. That's valuable stuff. Donald, are there any uh, thorium molten salt reactors running currently? Have there ever been? Uh, there, there have been. Uh, the, again, the, the only one that was actually built and run was at Oak Ridge National Lab. Uh, right now, there are no molten salt reactors operational. However, molten salts as a category uh, are used in a variety of other processes because they're they're very dense. They have very okay. high specific heat capacity. Okay, so tell uh, me about that uh, that lab and tell me what happened there and and why isn't it still running if it was so great? <laughs> well, again, uh, we got to go back to 1965, uh, Oak Ridge National Lab in Tennessee. Uh, the team there, um, you know, built and ran the reactor for about five years. It was rated, I think, to seven and a half megawatts. Uh, and the, the, some of the some of the stories were told there was about how it was, you know, essentially walk away safe. Uh, a beauty on molten salts. And, and let's get the let's let the engineers start to salivate on this one. Molten salts melt at somewhere around 300, 350 degrees C, and they don't boil. Until you get north of a thousand degrees C, so that means that you know if you've got a very nice high temperature reactor using it for process heat or, or heat and helium to make electricity, you can have 700, 800, 900 degrees C molten salt that is at atmospheric pressure. Right, and that's a really big deal for all the civil engineers out there and the material science guys. are going, wait a minute, how hot is this thing? And it's at it. It means we have eliminated some of the huge engineering hurdles here that are in a conventional reactor. You don't need a big complex pressure vessel. Mm. You don't need a big fancy containment vessel because the those systems in a conventional reactor are all designed to deal with the water issue. Or more effectively, I should say, the pressurized water issue. Because if you get a leak of any kind in a regular reactor that's got you know, 1,500, 2,000 PSI water in it, that's going to flash to steam right away. We're going to have a steam explosion, not a nuclear explosion, none of the stuff out of the movies. You have a steam explosion, and it doesn't matter whether you're burning coal, natural gas, or heating it with a reactor. 2,000 PSI water, when it gets to open air, is going to instantly turn into a gigantic volume of super hot steam and cause lots of problems. So going back to your question here, they were this is one of the problems they were solving at Oak Ridge back in the 60s. Uh, I, I wouldn't recommend it because, of course, it is still a hot reactor. But in theory, you could take the top of the reactor off and just look down at it. And you'd see this hot, bubbly molten salt, and it wouldn't gush up and flash at you or, or anything like that. Now, were it's, there any problems reported? Uh, there were uh, There were always, you know, technical issues. And, you know, no engineering project is ever perfect. Uh, they had to deal with lots of materials issues. 
you know, I was just raving about how nice it is that you have this hot molten salt. Uh, and it's at atmospheric pressure. That, of course, leads to, you know, what do you do for steels and things like that? So they, they did a lot of material science work uh, on on how to improve the materials in the reactor to make sure the corrosion wasn't an issue. Mm. Uh, playing with various combinations of acetaloy and, and how they put together this so you could have a, a long-lived uh, reactor and not have eat itself away. But, uh, you know, at the at the end of five years, the, the guy was intact and, and had not eaten itself up. And we're now, you know, 50 years plus from that time frame, and material science has advanced dramatically. Yeah, there's sure to be new materials now that can handle that. So what about meltdowns? We don't have the pressure problem, but how hot can this stuff get? Well, you, you, just, you just defined away a problem. Since it is a liquid, you never have a meltdown. It's, it's already melted. It's already melted. It's its natural state. And, and actually, in the event that something were to go wrong, you know, total power loss at the facility or something like that, since it's molten, the design feature on this guy is to put in what they call a freeze plug. At the bottom of the reactor, you have another piece of salt that you're running a coolant through in order to freeze it. And by freeze it, we mean keep it below 350C. So if something goes wrong, the power gets killed to the freeze plug. The hot molten salt on the top melts the freeze plug it's on and the liquid fuel drains out of the reactor into a storage tank. And remember what we were talking about maybe 10 minutes ago about how criticality is a function of mass and shape. Right. So to shut the reactor down, when you drain it out of the main reactor vessel, we change the shape and you instantly no longer have a critical reaction. We'll just break it up into multiple containers. You'll get the same effect. Yeah, there you go. As soon as you've changed the shape, the reactor shut down. Now, it's not immediate. It's not like turning off a gas engine. No, it's still hot. We still have to manage it. There are daughter parts generating heat. I don't want to pretend people that you would literally drain the reactor and then walk out of the place. It's not. It's not a perfect panacea. But it also strikes me that that's a non-destructive shutdown too. You could probably recover that fuel. And and that was actually one of the things that was done at Oak Ridge. They would drain the reactor, let the stuff freeze, freeze solid. Then you reheat the fuel artificially. Obviously, you use electric heat to melt it again. You pump it back into the reactor, and you now have a critical reaction again if you're running. It's a non-destructive failure. That's a perfect description okay. of what you can do with liquid fuel. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Ah, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to tweak the Plop Studios molten salt reactor down a few millerads. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think no. it is, actually. No, no. It's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before we do that, I need to tell you about Telerik JustCode. The new JustCode killer features are here. With the Q2 release, JustCode breaks new ground by becoming cloud-enabled. Nice. Your settings can now be saved in the cloud so they're conveniently accessible for multiple machines or VS instances. Second, a brand new Getting Started Wizard aids discoverability and walks you through the most useful JustCode features. And third, the nifty Clean Code feature will instantly organize, label, and file your code in production-quality files. These are just three more ways JustCode will transform you into a .NET ninja, helping you code faster and smarter. Download the new version, including these killer features, at Telerik.com slash JustCodeDNR. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. And one of our fans has just won a copy of JustCode as part of their DevCraft Complete. 
And who is it? That's right. It's $2,000 worth of software, everything they do in one box. Today's winner is Maurice Peters from Breda in the Netherlands. Ah, congratulations, Maurice. Congratulations. Golf clock for you, sir. He's very happy about that. So uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, and answer a few questions and join the fan club. We have thousands of members. We give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection in every show. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology. We like to ask our guests. And Donald, I'm going to ask you, if somebody said, I'm going to write a check for five grand so you can go buy some technology, some toys, what would you buy? What would I buy? Oh, I'd probably uh, endorse the back of the check and send it off to Microsoft for more cloud time <laughs> at Azure. <laughs> more Azure time. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very good. Okay. That's another a cloud guy, you know, can always get more cloud time. It's a completely reasonable uh, way to spend five grand. Well, hey, I'm, we're software guys. We're not hardware guys. Right, right. It's a very different skill set. Keeping banks and banks of servers up and running and maintained. I respect what they do and don't want to compete with them. Nice. That's right. Because, you know, when you run your own hardware, you got to worry about corrosion and all of those things. Who would do that? You know, you got to desalinate. <laughs> now, we will have no salt water in your computer jokes today, please. <laughs> Said the guy that had the 120-gallon saltwater fish tank dump into two of his yeah. machines. Now we're that that it's old school, Richard. Campbell, That's some right old, there. Pain. old pain, old you pain. You poking right there, <laughs> old pain. Hey, I, I got to jump back into this because I, you know, I yeah. totally buy into the the MSR loop, irrespective of the fuel on the primary side. The cold question gets more interesting when you get to the secondary side because now you've got this eight hundred degree salt that you can exchange heat off of. I would presume you would still use water on the secondary side to turn steam turbines just because that's the most mature technology. Am I wrong, Don? Uh, that is the most mature technology, but I would say no. Um, you, the secondary, uh, I'd advocate that you do another salt loop. Uh, so that way your, your first primary heat exchanger is a salt-to-salt uh, transfer. Right. And then, and then I would do a tertiary loop, and I still wouldn't go steam. And, and by the way, this is this is difficult for me to admit because... Uh, when I was a grad student studying nuclear engineering, I was fundamentally a steam guy. I lived in the enthalpy tables. Right. Uh, but if I'm going to make electricity now and, and I'm going to have this much higher temperature uh, available to me, yeah. my tertiary loop, I want to go helium. And I want to go helium so that I can feed it into a closed cycle gas braking engine. And those are much more efficient and have a much smaller footprint than a standard steam turbine. We've talked about helium here before, and one of the problems with helium, it's difficult to contain and, and kind of difficult to get, too. I mean, it's very abundant, but very difficult to collect. Uh, there's a, you know, I don't want to pretend to be a, a noble gas expert, but, you know, yeah, helium is you know, available both from, you know, you can mine it out of the earth, break it up from uh, lots of rock sources. You can actually pull it out of the air, though that's expensive. But the big deal is the efficiency you get out of a gas turbine instead of a steam turbine. You're trying to stay clear of the water temperature limitations because we, when we talked about right. helium, we were talking about in the context of pebble bed reactors, pebble beds, right. where it was actually being used in the primary loop, but also, you know, credibly resistant to radioactives, but it also got much higher temperatures. So it was, you, you get a lot of efficiency when you get hot. You get hot and you don't have to have a condensate leg. So uh, with steam, you typically you have two turbines. You have a high-pressure turbine, which yeah. is a fairly big piece of equipment, 
and then you have a low pressure turbine because you, you need a much different vein arrangement in order to use low pressure, lower temperature steam to attract more energy, uh, to extract more energy out of it. Okay. With the, ga- with the gas turbine, you're spinning at much higher speeds and the output side of the gas turbine is still a gas. Because helium all the way down to atmospheric temperature and pressure is still a gas. Right. So no more phase change problems. You don't have the phase change problems. All right. What's a phase change problem, guys? I'm sorry. We're you know, geeking. I'm, I'm like a mere mortal over here. <laughs> I'm a musician programmer. All right. Have mercy on me. Yeah, we're uh, we're definitely uh, definitely catering to the engineers here. What's the phase uh, change problem? On the beginning of the first turbine, you've got you've got hot, dry steam. And, and by that, I really mean dry steam. That means there's no water in it. You'll never see that at home coming out of your teapot. How, uh, how do you have steam without water? You have steam without water because the temperature is, is way above the condensate point on the curve at that step. Okay, I see. So there's, there's no water vapor. It's all hot gas going into the first turbine. Okay. But as, you, as it goes blade to blade to blade inside of the steam turbine, it's obviously getting cooler. It's working its way down the pressure vapor curve, and you'll reach a point where it starts to get wet. You start getting liquid water in the air, and when you have liquid water in the air, bad things start to happen. Uh, that you know, water is extremely corrosive. We have this little you know, people don't think of it, but we have this little body out in the western United States called the Grand Canyon <laughs> that was entirely cut by water. Mm. So if we can get liquids out of the turbines. Uh, that changes all sorts of things with respect to the, the life expectancy of the turbine, maintenance. Uh, water is just, uh, it's a nice thing to drink and it, it mixes really well at the bar, but you don't want it in your turbines. Yeah, when you get to, fa- when you hit the phase change state, you can damage the turbines. Like it, it's a sudden increase in pressure and density. And it's very hard on equipment. So now, when, what is the uh, still, what is the phase change state? It's, it's when, when we start getting water starting, actual water to start to reform again. And, and oh, I see. I, I was thinking in terms of phase of, of a, of yeah, the transformation from gas back to liquid. I get it. And it's, and it, you, it's impact at these kinds of velocities and pressures and stresses. Like it, it'll eat holes in turbine blades. Like it's, it. it's a big deal. It's nasty. So it, it just yeah. goes back to this idea that water, while abundant, is not actually a great product for these things. So, you yeah. know, the idea that, that helium remains helium gas all the time, all the way down in temperature just eliminates a lot of those problems. And you can actually capture its energy several times as it's cooling. Right. I guess one of the things that we talked about, Richard, was how, you know, uh, thorium may be really abundant, but helium isn't, right? Helium's harder to come by. But the other thing that we're talking about here is it's all closed loop, right? right. We're consuming thorium, but the other salt loop is closed and probably not re- got a, a radioactive in it anyway. Right. And if we're the helium loop closed again, right? right. You, so you, that, you don't right. need that much and you don't use it up. And you, uh, it's well worth it from an efficiency standpoint because the, the, the way the reactors are rated, you talk about megawatts thermal and then megawatts electric. A, a plant that's going to run steam, just, you know, making the math easy. If you have a 300 megawatt thermal plant, meaning there's 300 megawatts worth of heat coming out of the guy, you're, you expect to have a 100 megawatt electric facility. Right. Two thirds of the number is going to go out to whatever our ultimate heat sink is. If you do this with a, a gas cycle, close, close cycle gas Brayton image, we can talk about a 300 megawatt thermal plant that's a 150 megawatt electric. 
So you got another 50 megawatts of electricity for the same amount of heat going into the thing. Mm. And that will buy quite a bit of helium for startup. You know, it, it's a much more efficient way to produce electricity. Uh, Guys, what's the downside <laughs> here, man? What, what, is there any downside to this? Is it just a matter of convincing people uh, who have money to build a thorium reactor? Does it cost more or less to build a thorium reactor than a uh, uranium-plutonium reactor? Uh, all the uh, all the numbers that we've worked with, and there, there are a variety of uh, startups across the United States and some in Canada uh, that want to build these type of reactors, is that the cost to build the reactor will actually be lower from a, a pure engineering standpoint. That well, comes back to the whole point that it, it should be low pressure. Well, and we know more now, right? I mean, we know oh, wow. we know more about how to do these things. So the fact that hundreds of billions were spent to de- mature the light water reactor technology, some of that's going to benefit thorium but and molten salt reactors in general. But we're still got to be a big pile of money spent to scale molten salt reactors. The, the biggest one is 50 years old and generated seven megawatts at peak. That's not, it's not commercial grade. Yeah. Well, there, there will always be engineering issues to tackle. Uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to pretend that, you know, we could turn one up tomorrow. Uh, but the, the biggest issue with getting these things going uh, is the regulatory environment. Uh, there's 50, 60 years worth of institutional memory in Washington on our side and in Ottawa on your guys' side, that's all about, uh, in your case, heavy water reactors using the uranium-plutonium fuel cycle. On our side, light water reactors in the uranium-plutonium fuel cycle. It's what they know. It's what they, they've lived and breathed. And by the way, they have a phenomenal safety record mm. on both sides of the board. Uh, current reactors really are very, very safe, Hollywood theatrics aside. And the regulators don't know how to deal with this technology. Even though it's not new, it's old. Mm. They really don't know where to start. So that's that's a big purpose of the foundation is the education, the advocacy, the outreach on our part to remind everybody that, hey, this is not new. It's not like it's fusion where the fundamental physics is still in question. Right. As to how you build a large self-sustaining fusion reaction. Uh, we know how to do it with, you know, a, a ball of hydrogen a million times the mass of the Earth. <laughs> but when you try to make it smaller than that, it gets a little difficult. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component1. Smarter components for smarter developers. By the way, I'm on your side of the border. Richard's in Canada, Vancouver. I'm actually in Connecticut, so... Oh, you're in Connecticut? Yeah, I'm, I'm one of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were in New London. I'm sorry. Yeah, New London, Connecticut. Oh, I thought you were in New London, Ontario. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I'm, what I also appreciate about the MSR approach is you could do this in stages. That You could build a molten salt reactor that was heat exchanging to steam so that you could, you could even retrofit existing plants with it. You don't need a big pressure vessel. 
you know, a lot of the stuff gets simpler. I'm more concerned at this point about just the thorium production chain. Although clearly, you know, when you look at the rare earth situation in the U.S., there's clear incentive to solve this and to have a place to put the thorium. Oh, absolutely. The uh, getting getting the thorium fuel would be would be relatively easy. And and I do agree with you. Pretend that you know we suddenly had a a, a complete epiphany on the regulatory side. Uh, absolutely, a, a real engineering project would not be. Let's build a a two liquid. Um, liquid fluoride thorium reactor right out of the get-go. What we would really do is go back, build a molten salt reactor as a test reactor again, 5 megawatt, 10 megawatt in that range, test the material, test the new materials, test the new control systems, and, and build the policies around how you would do this. And then you'd build one probably running uranium fuel, to be honest, Yeah. as, as the next big step so that you could start to scale it. Uh, and then you would then move into thorium and go to fuels and start breeding around it. You would really want to do it in stages, like any sensible engineering project. Sure. I'd, I'd be really interested in seeing the differences in the uranium fuel cycle when run MSR style. Just because you're excluding a bunch of the other moderators, there's zirconium and things like that. Like It's got to look different in, in terms of residuals. Getting the zirconium out of the uranium-plutonium uh, fuel cycle, I'm sure, would be an absolute boon to those guys. Yeah, because what happened in Japan was actually was a zirconium problem. Uh, remember, the, they did not have a, a nuclear explosion in Japan. You can't get one from a reactor. They didn't even have a steam explosion in Japan. They had a hydrogen gas explosion, much like the Hindenburg, uh, because the zirconium was reacting with the water, and that put hydrogen gas at the top of the beast. So uh, getting the Zerk out of there would be a wonderful thing. I don't really understand why if we're going to build uh, thorium reactors, we need to start with your, you know, stuff that we have already done and already know. Um, uh, you uh, know but I'm not an engineer and I don't understand how those things go. But one of the things that y y you say in your document here is that uh, liquid fluoride thorium reactors can use a range of nuclear starter fuels and can consume plutonium and other uh actinides from legacy spent nuclear fuel stockpiles does this mean you can use nuclear waste that we have lying around here in a thorium reactor and essentially as fuel absolutely um again going back to uh, my comment from maybe 20 minutes ago about criticality being a function of both shape and mass mm. that you know in all of those large pools of water next to the existing reactors around the country uh, are fuel rods that still have uranium in them uh, they have U-235 in them, U-238 in them, they have plutonium in them. There's just not enough of them from a solid fuel standpoint to maintain a reaction. If you strip the zirconium off of those guys and, and then mix it into one of these reactors, all of that fuel is now burnable again. And, and for the engineers out there who want to talk about flux profiles and things, yeah, uh, which reactor doing what, there, you know, there, there's some complications with it. But the bottom line is, that is a resource in those pools of water that really we ought to be consuming to make more electricity with instead of trying to come up with a plan to bury it in the ground okay. for, for 300,000 or a million years. The it's valuable stuff. The other, the other issue is, you know, we, we could be burning uh, the spent fuel rods now, from what I understand, but the byproduct of that is plutonium. Do we still have, is it, is that true? First of all, and, and if it's not, and, or if it is, do we still have that problem with, uh, if we use the, the, the spent rods in, uh, as fuel in the thorium reactor? 
there's always whenever whenever a reactor is running, there's always a probability that a little plutonium is going to be made. But plutonium uh, inside of the reactor, as long as you can keep it in there and keep it exposed to more neutrons, it's ultimately going to fission itself and produce power. But isn't that why we can't burn it? Because uh, well, actually, one of the reasons we can't do it is because of the ban on uh, creating plutonium, which is uh, an international ban. Well, it's it's not a ban on creating plutonium per se. There's a ban in the United States on reprocessing fuel rods. Right. Because that, we could turn that into weapons. That was the theory. Uh, the practicality of it is it, it's phenomenally difficult to do. We should be stripping the zirconium cladding off of that stuff, uh, turning it into a liquid fuel and keeping it in a reactor and get rid of the 10,000, 300,000 uh, multiple-year uh, waste problem, right. and let's turn it into power. Let's turn it into very short-lived, easy-to-deal-with waste products. So we could do that today with the, with the plants that we have now if, it, if we just... Not, we'd have to build one of these reactors to do it. Oh, okay. We can't do it with the plants that exist. So, is, so that brings me to the next question, which is refactoring. You know, uh, can we refactor the nuclear plants that we have today... Just maybe say take one reactor or build a new thorium reactor and just sort of gradually uh, move them into uh, a thor- a molten salt or LFTR reactors. Uh, you wouldn't actually convert the existing reactor at, at a location, but the, the entire site is really an ideal place to put a new reactor for a variety of reasons. You know, there is all the, there are all the spent fuel rods there. They're typically near a large heat sink so that you've got a place uh, to, to be able to get the waste heat out. You're connected to the grid so you can put your power facilities there and generate electricity from it. So you wouldn't really convert a, a light water reactor or a heavy water reactor in Canada into a, into a liquid fluoride thorium reactor, but the existing power plant is a great place to set, set the new reactor. So let's say you have a power plant with three reactors. You could, you know, maybe one of them's decommissioned or whatever. You could remove that physically. I, I have no idea what you'd do with it because it... Well, maybe, yeah, maybe. generally they don't touch them. They're small. I think people forget. Those big cooling towers and stuff, all that big stuff, that's not the reactor. Oh, okay. Reactors are tiny. They're just little buildings made of concrete. So you fill them in with concrete or something like that to decommission them, I guess. And there'd be a decommissioning process for the reactor. Uh, but but there's typically there's a fair amount of land there. It's just a matter of putting up another building I see. to put the next reactor in, and you'll use the existing cooling tower. Yeah, you'll it. probably just hook. You're going to run pipes to the existing uh, power generation system. Mm. Sounds like a great idea. Like I I love the idea, Don, of of doing the whole Gen four high temperature power generation, and so forth. But I feel like that's just complicating matters right now. We can do that too. I want the MSR side, and I'd rather plug it into the existing systems that people have. What's the downside of molten salt reactors versus liquid fluoride thorium reactors? Well, a, a liquid fluoride thorium reactor is a molten salt reactor. Oh, okay. So it, it, it's a subset. It's just a fluorine um, salt. as opposed you, On the secondary loop, you were talking about using a salt there as well. What salt would you use? Oh, you'd use, uh, you'd use the same salt. You'd use a fluoride salt, a uh, similar melting point. Uh, in order to make sure you got good transfer of heat across, and, but you uh, wouldn't. It wouldn't be a thorium-based salt. Oh no, no, you wouldn't have the fuel in it because uh, the, the the primary one is the the fuel is dissolved in the salt, right, in the reactor. 
the 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 the, the next coolant loop would be the same salt without any fuel in it. So there's no there's no radioactive materials in that one, and then that then goes over to ultimately. I think we got to go to a helium loop, but you know you could always run that then to a, a, a water loop and you know make steam and run it through a regular turbine. Jeez, sounds too good to be true. I'm, I'm wondering if if we're you know have rose colored glasses on and are missing any obvious problems here. Lots of money has to be spent still. Well, lots of money has to be spent to build more nuclear reactors, more uh, plutonium uranium reactors too. Right. Well, well we, we, need, we need lots of more power in the world, guys. Uh, energy, I, I don't want to make the, the, the lifter sound like it's the silver bullet for all of the world's problems, uh, but energy is what is really the silver bullet for all of the world's problems. Right. If, if you look at the history of civilization, every time we've made a breakthrough from, you know, the discovery of fire so that now we could cook food and put more calories in our stomach, you know, through... You know, uh, burning, burning wood to be able to smelt metals and then getting to coal and getting into the steam cycle. Our standard of living, our lifespan, our quality of life goes up and up and up. Energy is the silver bullet for mankind's problems. And I would advocate that this is our best option with the least problems, not zero problems, but the least problems in order to solve and meet the world's energy so, uh, if the world had enough energy from thorium, has any calculation been done as to when the thorium supply would run out? Uh, actually, uh, that has been done. If you, if you take uh, the United States or Canada as the standard, and you want to bring everybody else in the world, all 7 billion people, up to U.S. and Canadian standards of living. And then, because I admit uh, I'm a nice capitalist, I don't want to stay there, let's double it. Let's bring the entire world up to our level of energy consumption, and then let's double that energy consumption. Okay. Meaning if we doubled everybody's standard of living, you end up with a number. I believe it's forty-two hundred quadrillion BTUs of power you need per year. <laughs> the energy, I mean, the the thorium, all the thorium in the Earth's crust would would be able to provide that for forty billion years. Oh my which is god! Just an insanely ridiculous number. So effectively unlimited. I mean, that sort of a number from a human civilization standpoint is just meaningless. We, wow. we have virtually unlimited power from thorium. Virtually God. unlimited. There's, you know, we will actually, if we, we would burn out the sun before we'll run out of thorium on the planet. And by that the way, we don't want to just stay on the planet, right? We want to eventually go to the moon. The moon's full of thorium. We'll eventually build a Mars base, right? There's plenty of thorium on Mars. It's, it's wildly abundant. And we're gonna we're gonna take this technology with us, you know, as we start to move out into the solar system, because we're gonna need lots and lots of power uh, when we finally get to be a spacefaring civilization again. Still waiting for the downside, man. Richard said it's gonna take money, but you know what? It's gonna take money to build more power plants anyway. Well, yeah, it's different between it's, research and construction. Yeah, it's it's gonna take money. You know, we've got to, we've got to learn how to build and scale these things. Um, you know, there there is a there's a short lived waste issue, but it's really very trivial from an engineering standpoint. I mean, because what most you know half the people in Europe live in houses that are what 150 or 200 years old. The pyramids have been around for 3,000. So us dealing with you know waste products that you know are, are hot for 10 or 15 years are easy, and short stuff that's going to go two to 300 is a piece of cake from an engineering standpoint. You know, this eliminates uh, our two huge problems. You can't you can't melt down because it's already a liquid. 
and you don't have the long-lived waste issue of tens of thousands of years. And we're not that, building so, weapons anymore, right? You know. Oh yeah, and, and it doesn't lend itself to to uh, to the weapon cycle at all. I mean, if you want to build weapons, you're going to go uranium plutonium. You're not going to go thorium. You know, once uh, once somebody is powering a city on a thorium reactor or whatever, then there will be no more need to build new uh, uranium plutonium. Uh, so, so the no Iran can use that as an excuse. Oh, you know we're building this to, for power. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. I, I know you, you guys are a tech show. The the geopolitics <laughs> we could probably get into, but I don't know. That you're yeah, I'd like to stay away from that pretty yeah, much. But should. but uh, you know, from a technical standpoint, it's just pretty amazing. Yeah, because nobody begrudges the Iranians a high standard of living. No, no, absolutely. I, I'd not. love to absolutely. I'd love to see their people moving up the the economic scale. That's actually good for everybody. Because They're very smart. Very, you know, wealthy people like to have, you know, verbal arguments among themselves. They don't like to fight, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the richer we make the world, the, the higher the standard of living for everyone, the better off we all are. And, and I don't want to make it sound like a perfect fantasy that you never have conflict. Uh, but when, uh, when's the last time, you know, you know, the United States and Canada got mad at each other? Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago on a trade issue. I think it was a hockey game fit? in Vancouver I was at. Uh, yeah, well, maybe some fists were thrown there. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, the, the U.S. and Canada, you know, don't talk about going nose to nose on anything. We talk our way through things, right? You know, modern Europe now, the, the, the French and the Germans, I think, are done fighting. <laughs> they argue yeah. about lots of stuff, but I, I don't see France and Germany going to war again because yeah. they're, they're rich wealthy, high standard of living societies. They trade with each other. You know, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Well, wow, Donald, you've blown my mind. I, I uh, honestly hope we can continue this discussion and that um, the the United States and the world continues this discussion. If um, you're listening to this and you have some way to help spread the word, can we uh, send them to your website and, and they can uh, help get the word out? Oh, absolutely. You can find us online at www.th90.org. Awesome. Donald, thank you very much. My pleasure, guys. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a van by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.